Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, Andrea Sorensen. Welcome to the podcast, hey, Andrea. happy to be here. On this podcast, we're going to talk about addiction, drugs, pornography. Um, Andrea has perspective. She, she grew up in a family where her parents were working through addiction. And so she's going to share her insights into this road and the learning that she is going to share with our listeners to help all of us better understand um, people that are working through addiction. So if you're working through addictions, this is an episode for you. If you're looking to help others, this is an episode for you. As Andrea has a lot of experience, she's been speaking in Firesides and other podcasts, the LDS, or so, so, sorry, the KSL Project Recovery Podcast. And a little bit about Andrea. She is an active LDS uh, member, mother of five, a convert to the church at age 16. So we're going to start with her conversion story. Yeah. Is that a fair introduction, Andrea? Absolutely. Sure. Good. Yeah. I think it's great. I mean, my family is the most important thing to me. So I'm happy that they made it into the intro. <laughs> you bet. And um, you gr you're a high school graduate of 2001. So if any of our listeners yeah. want to age you, if they, we're not going to say your age out loud, but <laughs> If they want to do the math, they can kind of get the idea. You've got five kids at home, yes. and a young family. So I think that's where you are in life. And you offered such a wonderful prayer before we started recording. And our hope is that our listeners will really get some meaningful things out of this podcast, point us to Christ and give us more hope to overcome difficult things that we're working on. Tell us your conversion story, Andrea. All right. Well, I was 16 years old when I was baptized, but I, I should probably start back at the time I was 10. I was living in California at the time, and my mother had dropped me off at my babysitter's house early one morning. It happened to be picture day. And so that evening, she had put my hair in these ridiculous sponge curlers. <laughs> And if you're my age and a woman, you know what those are like, very uncomfortable, but they did the trick sort of. So I remember sitting there with my babysitter early in the morning and she's taking these sponge curlers out of my hair and we're making conversation and, um, <laughs> my hair is sticking up like lightning bolts. It's ridiculous. Right. And so like any good woman of the eighties though, instead of combing that down, like we would now, she's just ratting those babies up. Right. <laughs> so, so I've got this huge bouffant hair and she says, well, you look beautiful. And I tell her, thank you. And, and then she proceeds to talk about this upcoming move that my family has. And that's a move to Utah. And she says, well, how do you feel about it? And at the time I really wasn't very excited. I was a beach girl. I loved California, but my grandparents were in Utah. And so I mentioned to her that I was excited to be closer to family, but I was really going to miss the beach. And then she said, you know, they have Mormons there. And so at this time, I immediately, I am in fourth grade at the time. And so my brain immediately goes to this Mormons. I'm studying grammar. Is this a person, place, or thing? And so I'm going over this in my head. And then she follows it up with, you know, I hear they have horns. <laughs> So ding, ding, ding. I'm like a thing. Mormons are a thing, right? And so I don't really remember how the rest of the conversation goes. We end up in Utah and I arrive in Salt Lake City thinking I am about to encounter these things called Mormons with horns. So naturally I thought y'all were animals, right? <laughs> Little did I know that these Mormons were going to change the course of my life for the better. 
And so I start elementary school and I have always been a really outgoing kid. And I show up ready to make friends first day of school. And I am struggling to make friends for the first time in my life. Wow! And so I can't figure it out. And I've got this group of girls that I'd really like to become friends with. And I just, I can't seem to break the ice with them. And so I come up with this great idea of these awesome activities that I'm going to offer up for them to do. So I get up the courage about a week later and I remember approaching them and asking if they wanted to hang out after school. And I don't really get a response. And so then I follow it up with, okay, well, how about we go to my place and we can maybe jump on the trampoline and play basketball? Like I've got this great backyard. It'll be so much fun. Crickets once again. And so I think, all right, I got to pull out the big guns here, right? I need to come up with something really, really fun. And so I say to them, why don't we hop on our bikes and we go down to the liquor store together? (laughs) And they give me this look of just horror and shock. And I can't figure out why. (laughs) I have no idea. And so that's really how that conversation ended. Well, little did I know that in Utah, the liquor store was an adult only store (laughs) where I came from in California, the local convenience store at the end of the street, we called the liquor store. You could buy food and bananas. Exactly. It had all of the candy that I wanted. And it also happened to have all of the liquor that my parents wanted. So for us, it was just this fun trip that we would make as friends. And here I am, um, in this community that has a very different culture than what I'm familiar with. And yeah, it it wasn't well received, but it's a funny story. Nonetheless, it's a great story. So that's my first introduction with, uh, that, that LDS culture in Utah. So I persevere And I keep trying to make these friends. And I overhear um, some of them whispering about the new girl. And then I hear she smells like cigarettes. And I remember stopping and just thinking, oh, that's why they don't want to hang out with me. And it broke my heart. Wow. I didn't know what to do about it. I mean, both of my parents smoked in our home, in our car. I mean, it was all around me all the time. And where I lived before, all of my other friends' parents smoked too. So we all smelt like cigarette smoke together. It wasn't even something that I was aware of until I came here. And that was hard for me to hear that. I was powerless to do a thing about it. And, uh, you know, I've looked back on that experience since then and definitely have talked to my children about it and used that as a... good encounter this? What do we do about this? Um, but I promise, obviously I'm a member of the church. Not all of my experiences were negative. (laughs) So as things progress, I continue to forge ahead. I make friends. Um, and there are some girls who begin to start to say hi to me just casually during recess. This year or two of first living here in the state were really difficult for me. Um, but they just started with a simple hello, which as the years went by led to a much deeper friendship and then led to invitations for me to start to attend some mutual activities. And I was nervous about this. And the reason being is because my parents, now remember when I came here, I didn't even know what the word Mormon meant. (laughs) 
I didn't know what a Mormon was. And so as soon as I figured it out and these girls started to be nice to me and wanting to hang out with me, I went home to tell my parents about the nice Mormons who had invited me to be their friends. And I remember that they were shocked. I remember my father being really, really upset at this time. And I didn't know why. And then they went on to explain to me that they believed that Mormonism was a cult and uh, that I was allowed to hang out with these girls, but I was not allowed to participate in their religion in any way. And so this word went from something that I didn't even know to this source of just venom and hatred and contention within my home. So I didn't bring it up very often. (laughs) So time goes by and I begin to attend some mutual activities and then I get invited to play on their sports teams. Um, I start out with basketball and I don't know if it's because I'm tall. That's why I got invited, but I'm terrible. I am. I'm terrible at basketball, but they invited me nonetheless. And it was really, really fun. And then I started playing on the volleyball team and I had never played volleyball before I show up and that ball really hurts when it hits your wrists for the first time. <laughs> but I gave it my all like go get her. Andrea was going to give it everything that she had, even though she was terrible. And I remember realizing at the end of that first volleyball practice that I had popped all of the blood vessels in my arms. So I show up at home and I go to show my mom, like, what can we do for this? And <gasps> what have you been doing? And I said, Oh, I've been hanging out with the Mormons. (laughs) I didn't say it well, right? Not the right thing to say. Of course, shock and horror on her face (laughs) because these pop blood vessels looked strangely like hickeys or something all over my arm. And I said, Oh no, no, no. I was was playing volleyball mom. (laughs) So I diffused the situation and she continues to let the friendship happen. So we're years into this at this point. And right now my family life is really hard. I am looking to these Latter-day Saint friends of mine because they were just this light. I just noticed something different about them. But remember, I was told that they were part of a cult. And so I was only allowed to be friends with them. And so things are getting really, really rough at home. My dad is an alcoholic and um, at that time was probably the worst of his addiction. And he would go, you just didn't know what dad you were going to get when you came home from school or when he came home from work, you didn't know if you were going to get nice. How was your day at school today, dad? Or if you were going to get raging belligerent dad. And so, so you were always living in this place of fear and, uh, just this unpredictability and this anxiousness, right. Of not knowing, um, how to navigate the waters at home. So you're constantly tiptoeing. I feel like walking on eggshells all the time. And so I'm going through a lot of pain. My mom is trying really hard to help him come out of his alcoholism. She's asking him to go to AA meetings and we're doing everything that we can. And he doesn't have a desire to change. And so I'm in this, I'm in this dark place and I'm looking for this light, which is, I'm sure why I gravitated toward these friends. And so I decide I need religion. I need, I need help. I can't do this alone. I need the savior in my life. So I look everywhere, but the LDS church, I become Catholic. I become Lutheran. I become Baptist. I become Methodist. I jump from church to church. Um, and in that process, I meet some outstanding Christians in the state of Utah. There are some amazing followers of Christ that are living right among us. 
And I encourage you to develop a relationship with people of other faiths because you will be surprised how alike we really are, despite that obvious difference or maybe cultural barrier that often separates us. We're missing out. We're missing out when we don't reach out. So I meet all of these people, yet I'm still not, I'm still not finding the peace. I'm still not getting the answers that I need. And I'm trying to figure out how to draw upon the Lord for strength, but I just can't quite figure it out. So this friend of mine, uh, part of that same group of girls that just started to kind of say hi to me during recess in elementary school. It's been years of friendship now. And she asks me for, I don't even know how many times she'd asked before, but she asks me again, Andrea, would you like to take the missionary discussions? Well, no, <laughs> no, I don't want to take the missionary discussions, but maybe you do. <laughs> and so all of a sudden I have this light bulb go off in my head and I think, whoa, Andrea, this is like your moment, right? You've been to their activities. You've played on their sports teams. You've even been to girls camp. And at this point I had snuck a sacrament meeting or two in. And I thought, if I say yes to these missionary discussions, they'll leave me alone. That's it. That's all they've got left to throw at me. And so I agree to do it with the idea that I'm just going to go through the motions, take the discussions, and then we can just leave this whole Latter-day Saints religion behind us. And I can move on and figure out how to put the pieces of my life together without Mormonism. Okay. And without disappointing my family, because really that's what I was afraid of. And so I show up to my friend's house for these discussions. Now, obviously I, I didn't tell my parents, I should have told my parents, but I didn't tell my parents. I went down the street to the state president's house. <laughs> this great friend of mine who had been doing all of these things with me was the daughter of the state president at the time. And this family was extraordinary. And every time I walked into their home, uh, when we would walk to school together, or we would hang out after school, or whatever else. I felt a difference. Like the moment I stepped through the doorway, every single time I felt something, I just didn't know what it was. And so I walk in and I sit down and then the missionaries come in and they introduce themselves. And I had seen these elders before. I may have closed the door in their faces a time or two with my younger sister. <laughs> We, we were professionals at avoiding the missionaries. Of course, you know, when you're living in the state of Utah um, and you're not a Latter-day Saint, where do you think all of the new missionaries go in the neighborhood when they were tracting? They would come to my house, right? So we got really good at shutting off all the lights and avoiding them. And we had this fantastic system. And then all of a sudden, I'm actually greeting them this time, <laughs> ready for the lesson. So I felt a little bad, but I, sheepish, you know, so... They ask me to start off the discussion with a prayer. They ask me and I'm terrified. And I remember looking over at my friend's father, the stake president and thinking, why are you asking me? The stake president is right there. <laughs> like, I'm sure he can give a better prayer than I can. No, we want you to give the prayer, Sister Seely. Okay, I guess I will. So I get ready to start with my classic like, um, praying hands. 
and I notice everybody else has got their arms folded and and what I call like <laughs> the classic like Mormon Mormon fold. And so I follow suit and then they ask us to all kneel down. And so I'm thinking this is getting real. Like I I uh I don't know if I'm equipped for this. I'm feeling very inadequate. So I kneel down and I start the prayer and I really don't know what I'm doing. It <laughs> it was um an awful prayer. <laughs> I don't even remember what I said, but I just remember feeling like I was stumbling along. But in this moment, in this moment of um, this lack of language and eloquence, I know that Heavenly Father was up there celebrating because I believe, I totally believe he celebrates, right? And I know in this moment, he was like, this is it. He's up there jumping for joy because in that minute, I feel the Holy Ghost come upon me. And I hear the words, this is it. This is the peace that you have been looking for for all of these years. And so I finish the prayer and I sit back down and you would think that I would shout something like, I want to get baptized right now, but I don't. I quietly sit down. And I let the discussion proceed without saying a word. And it was because fear, fear took over. I was so afraid of what my family was going to think. I was so scared that I would be disowned or that they would be disappointed in me or angry at me or that this was, this is going to elevate the contention in the home in some way. And so for six months, I took these discussions because I was too, I was too afraid to act. And then finally, <laughs> I finally agree to a baptismal date and I get baptized in January. And, uh, and then I thought everything was going to be peachy king and hunky dory, right? I remember I only told my mother, uh, my parents were divorced at the time. So at the age of 13, my mom finally says, I, I can't figure out how to fix your father. I can't do this anymore. This is enough. They get divorced and, um, and they separate. And we, at that point, start living, uh, two weeks with my dad, two weeks with my mom. And I do this until I move out of the house after high school graduation. So I remember I only got permission from my mom, which I'm sure was not the right thing to do, <laughs> but we got the go ahead. I got baptized and things just got a lot harder after that, um, but the difference, the difference was that I had a toolbox. I had to learn to open it and use it, but I had it and it was there. And so, um, yeah, then I begin this journey of really learning to use the gospel to deal with this really heavy stuff that was going on in my parents' lives and that I had no control over and was subjected to. And it was a pretty interesting journey. Um, at first, I, you know, I started attending church and um, it was kind of hard to adjust to the culture, right? Of like regular Sunday attendance. I mean, like you go every week, right? <laughs> that was something that was new for me. And so I start attending and I start questioning my place in the gospel, questioning my place in the ward in this, in this very family centered congregation. Well, where did this like 16 year old girl who's showing up alone fit in? Um, I didn't know. I didn't know 
I didn't know where my place was. And at this time, I also did not want a family. I did not want to be a mother. Uh, because in my mind, if this is what family life was, I was comparing it to my family, right? Then I want no part of this. I'm just, I'm going to go be a career woman. I don't want to subject children to this contention. I just, I just didn't have the framework. I didn't have an example set for me. I mean, the closest thing I ever saw to a really good functioning family was going down the street to the state president's house and being there for a little bit after school or whatnot. And so that really wasn't on my radar. And I'm a few months into my membership of the church and I'm really starting to play victim here. I'm a teenager. I can't figure out how to deal with all of this pain that's going on. And so I am playing the victim. I am thinking like if I wear my trials around like a, like a big scarlet letter, right. Then people are going to know that I'm going through this. And, and maybe that sympathy is going to help me get through this pain. And what I didn't realize is that I really needed to reach for the savior to heal that. So I show up at church one Sunday and I walk in and I sit down and the opening hymn starts. And what do you know? It's families can be together forever again. And I hated this song. And I swear to you, it was played every Sunday from the moment I joined the church. And I thought Heavenly Father was taunting me with this song because this song, this song to victim Andrea was about everything that Andrea didn't have. Right. And, oh, I would just get so upset. And I remember multiple times sitting through a sacrament meeting or sitting anywhere I was where this hymn was played and just folding my arms and I have to do this again. Well, this time, those same thoughts go through my head during the first verse. And then the second verse hits and this tender mercy happens. I hear the words can be in the song. It's like for the first time, just those two words together can be. And it hit me. It was like a light switch had been flipped and my life was illuminated all of a sudden because I realized Whoa, this song isn't about the family that you don't have, Andrea. This is the fa- about the family that you can have. This family that can be. That's cool. And everything changed after that moment. Everything changed for me. Trials didn't go away. They got worse. But my perspective changed. And my ability to realize that I was in control of my attitude, of my actions, and of my future, despite whatever circumstances I was subjected to. And it was the most empowering moment of my life. And then I realized, Heavenly Father hasn't been playing this song in every sacrament meeting to taunt me. He's been playing it to try to get it through my thick skull, right? Like, Andrea, look at this possibility look at what can be. So that was a, that was a transformative moment for me to learn how to get rid of that victimhood and instead step into what the savior knew I was capable of, right. As this divine daughter of God. How old were you when this happened? I was 16. So this happened about within a year of you being baptized. Yeah. Yeah. Within a few months of me being baptized. Yes. Um, uh, thanks for joining our church and thanks for <laughs> navigating the culture and some of the setbacks you had. And it's a very faith promoting story. And I love the contrast with the light you felt and 
your journey to find truth in all those religions. And maybe it was good for you to go to all those religions and then have this experience during that prayer. Um, I don't think, I don't, in some ways, I don't blame you for not telling people about how you felt during the prayer because there's a lot of fear. Oh, so much. So I don't think that's a sign of weakness. I think that's just more a sign of timing and and maybe Heavenly Father wanted you to have that answer now at that point, knowing that you wouldn't be able to act on that answer. Yeah. In the sense, acting on a baptism, but you acted on the sense you hung in there with the missionaries and you kept the door open, you kept learning. And and um, so I think you did great. <laughs> Thank you. Well, sometimes you just don't know right away, you know, and it's hard to it's hard to know when to take that leap. It's scary. Um, I'd love you to talk about um, your your journey with other people's addictions. Okay. Um, unless you want to talk more about your journey within the church. Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, I feel like they go hand in hand. I do not think that I could have survived this journey of uh, learning to deal with the addictions of loved ones without uh, the gospel. Let me just do some setup questions. Sure. Um, how old were you? You got married. How old? I did. Were you in your 20s? I was 20s? 20 when I got married. I was a baby. <laughs> so you got married four years after you got baptized. Tell our listeners your husband's name. His name is Sean. And he's an active member of the church, oh, grew yeah. up in the church. Yeah, he grew up in the church, comes from a fantastic, just loving, wonderful, gracious family. And tell us your kids' age range. Yeah, you bet. So my kids are ages 5 to 14. And you've got five. I have five. Yes. Years. So five, eight, 10, 12, and wow, 14. It's a wild ride. <laughs> that's great. Well, um, that helps. And your mother has, we're going to talk about your mother yeah. just to tell the end from the beginning. I can't remember if I said this being, she has since died. Yes. She died. Tell us the date that she died. Uh, she died June 25th of 2018. And she died related to her addiction. Correct. So I, that's a very unusual road to walk, to have parents that are both working through addictions, have a mother that's now died, your dad's alive. And, and before we went on the podcast, we talked a lot about shame and, and the shame associated around addiction and your desire to take the shame away Yes. so that people have a better chance of overcoming addiction. So just where do you want to go from here, Andrea? Well, I just feel like when we carry that shame around with us, it's kind of like how I talked about that, that victimhood, right? I, um, you know, it was like I was walking around in this dollar store t-shirt with a big giant letter V on it when the whole time I could have been like glamming it up in something from Target, right? <laughs> like I was choosing to carry this weight and I feel like with shame, um, we can carry it. And we can make it really heavy. And shame, I believe, is one of Satan's greatest tools to keep us trapped in our trial. And when we decide that we don't have to carry this heaviness alone anymore, but instead we can shed that shame and let the Savior be what we carry with us. That's when we see those transformations occur. And the cool thing is, is that when you do that, all of a sudden you have all of these people around you who've had these shared experiences or can relate to what you have been through. And then they're suddenly able to see, okay, like getting rid of the shame is actually 
going to be beneficial. Being vulnerable is what's actually going to heal me. And we can't, we can't shed the shame without that vulnerability, right? And it's been my experience every single time that when I have been vulnerable, I have healed and I have helped not only myself, but those around me. And that's the way of the savior, right? Shame is, is Satan's way. The savior is the one that allows us to be uplifted by one another's experiences. Okay. So like you just said some really golden nugget things that we could do a whole podcast. about. <laughs> um, you said trapped in our trial, right? And you also said vulnerability is what heals us. So yes, let's talk to the listeners out there that, um, or want to solve a pornography problem or want okay. to solve a drug or alcohol problem. And, and they're sitting here with you right now and they're saying, Andrea, you know, this has been going on for 10 years. I've got this porn problem or this alcohol problem or this drug problem. And I really want to, to end it. And I sort of white knuckle for a period of time. And then I sit back and I'm in this endless loop that I just can't quite break the cycle. Yeah. Talk to those, talk to those listeners. Well, here's what I want you to know first. Like I said, the shame can keep you trapped. But I think of my mom and I think of those early years of her addiction and all the time that she kept it secret. And I am telling you as a loved one of an addict, of somebody that was doing something that they felt shame about, I would rather hear about her trial or about her sin a thousand times than to have lost her, right? Like, I promise you that your family and your friends and those around you would rather hear you say, I have a problem and would rather know about this than to have you gone because of it. I always tell my kids, there is nothing that you could do ever that would make me lose my love for you. Like that is unconditional. It's the way the savior loves us. And I know it's the way your family and your friends love you. When we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, when we allow ourselves to discuss those dark parts, those parts that we feel like we have to keep to ourselves because they will somehow diminish our character. Those are the very things that we need to share. And the reason why is because when we open it up and we are vulnerable, number one, we're telling Satan, you can't keep me trapped anymore. And number two, we're training ourselves to learn to cling to the savior and not to the trial. And that is a transformative experience. And when we open up and we're willing to tell other people, I'm dealing with this, you find out really quickly that you're not alone. And we were never meant to be alone, right? I mean, I look at the scriptures, I look at the apostles and the prophets, and anytime I'm ever gravitated towards somebody who is speaking or gravitated towards uh, passages in the scriptures, it's because a story is being told. It's because of a personal experience, right? God has always intended for us to teach one another through story, right? because it provides connection. Now, if you're a part of the addiction community, you learn that connection is what heals us. You can't heal without connection. You cannot do it alone. And alone is where Satan wants you to stay. Alone is where shame thrives and lives and breathes. 
but vulnerability and connection and bringing people in. That's where light thrives. That's where healing is. And that's where your power begins to become manifest, right? And I'm getting really deep here, but you know, as, as an investigator, um, those questions when I was jumping from different religion to religion were, why are we here? Why are we allowed to be subjected to this anguish, to these trials, to these difficult circumstances? And I wasn't really ever able to find the answers until I became a member of the church and started really studying that plan of salvation. And, and even years into my membership and particularly dealing with these trials of trying to help my parents, um, I came to the knowledge and I really believe that God doesn't handpick a trial and drop it in our lap. I believe that we are simply allowed to be subjected to this earthly experience because what that does is that allows us to grow experience. And when we experience, we develop empathy. And when we develop empathy, we're one step closer to becoming like him because Jesus Christ is the perfect empathizer, right? And Ultimately, we know that we are to obtain all that the Father hath, right? But we can't get there unless we have this experience, unless we learn to develop this empathy. And then that, again, goes back to connection and vulnerability. Our Savior is the perfect empathizer because he has been through it all. And God allowing us to be subjected to this human experience, whatever trials end up happening around us or to us are simply there to help us get one step closer to becoming like him because he loves us that deeply. This is really good stuff. I hope you realize how many insights you have about on this topic and how helpful your voice is and how much um, I wish I'd heard you speak before I was a singles word bishop. Um, so keep talking. Thank you. <laughs> Talk. I'm thinking back to singles word bishop days where I was surprised how many wonderful men and a few women were working on pornography. Yeah. Um, so talk to, um, when you talk about opening up and being vulnerable, should uh, talk to a young man or a young woman that's working through porn, what should they be doing? What, what general advice would you give them? And if they're dating, would you encourage them to talk to who they're dating about their current pornography challenge? Yes, especially if you're in a serious relationship. I believe that that is something that needs to be discussed. And I think that if you can work through that, your relationship will be stronger for it. Um, I feel, again, like first, don't keep the secret anymore. You're not going to heal if you just keep this to yourself. You start first with opening up to the Lord in prayer. And it's that admission, right? That beautiful process of repentance that will be the first step to healing. But I do believe, again, that God intends us, intends for us to heal with each other's help. 
We were never meant to do any of this alone, right? It goes back to why we were all born into families, why that's such a divine unit, because we're not meant to get there. We're not meant to become gods and goddesses by ourselves. <laughs> we have to rely on each other in order to get so there. You tell them to go to, I love the idea in prayer. You yes. would tell God where you are. I think going to your priesthood leader has a, obviously a spiritual component, but I recognize from a therapeutic standpoint it and the things you're talking about, it, it is, you know, very healing to open up to a trusted leader. Absolutely. About a pornography thing yeah. or any sort of addiction. So I yeah. love I think you were probably going to get there anyway. Talk about um, why you would open up. You said to open up to, if you were in a serious relationship, open up to the person you're dating about your current addiction. Why yeah. would you do that? Well, why just, wouldn't you just think it would be better for me to solve this so this person never knows this about me and, and he or she will never be aware of this and it'll make our relationship better in the mm -hmm. long run? It's because those parts of us the dark parts and the light parts, they're part of who we are. And if you plan to be with somebody for eternity, you have to be able to trust in that relationship and trust enough to know that they're going to love you despite all the dark and because of all of the light. We're not asked to only pick perfect people to marry, right? God wants us to learn to love despite the dark, right? It's part of that unconditional love. That commitment, that eternal foundation begins with trust. And so, yeah, we, we've got to be open. We've got to be open about all of those deep, dark things that we've experienced in our lives because we're expected to love the imperfect too. What if I, I love your answer. Um, what if I... What if a YSA said to you, well, I was sexually active um, before my mission. I'm, and this isn't really an addiction thing. It's more of just how to handle. Sure. Um, I was sexually active before my mission. I repented. I went on a mission. I'm now clean and worthy. Um, I kind of know who I'm dating as a virgin. I'm not. Should I disclose this to who I'm dating or not? If it were me, I would. Why? Um, because again, it goes back to what I just said. I feel like it's really important for us to be able to develop that, that foundational bond, to be able to be open and honest with each other about who we really are and about our life experiences. And don't for a second think that because of a sin or a transgression or an experience that you've had in the past that you are less than. In fact, you are more than because you've learned to overcome this. And what an amazing thing that you'll bring to the relationship by saying to this person, I've dealt with this trial and I've dealt with this challenge, but I've learned to rely on the Savior. I've been through the repentance process and I know how to get through those hard times. I mean, to me, that brings a much more powerful, evolved person to the table uh, than somebody who shrinks from their past. It's okay to have a past. We'll be embraced regardless. Well, that puts some tears in my eyes, Andrea. I love your answer. Um, it's, a, it's an answer that I believe the same way. I believe some people would end a relationship because they learn about the sexual history or the current or past pornography challenges, and I would give that person permission to do that. Mm -hmm. 
Um, everybody's personal revelation is unique to them, but I would hope that most would look at that. I would hope that most would even recognize if I'm the spouse that had never been sexually active, that my sexually active and now repented spouse may have some additional insights about the gospel of Jesus Christ to help our future children. And this spouse of mine is better off for what he or she has gone through. And our marriage is going to be better off and our ability to be parents is better off. And that's just the beauty of repentance. And yeah, we wouldn't want to go back and say it was okay to make that mistake, but I think that's the beauty of repentance and the increased gifts that come into our lives as we work through difficult things. So I love your answer. It's a home run answer. Thank you. Well, once again, it's that being subjected to the human experience so that we can gain more light, more knowledge, more empathy, all of those things. Um, Talk about opening up to a so let's say I was never a married ward bishop, so this is, I don't have any experience in this space, yeah. but um, somebody has a closeted pornography problem that's never opened up to his or her spouse and is thinking, okay, I'll, I'll do what Andrea says. I'll be vulnerable. I'll open up to the bishop. I'll maybe open up some other people, but I know this is going to break my spouse's heart if he or she knows that I have a pornography problem and I've never talked to her or him about it. Right. So I'm just going to solve this on my own because I'm worried it'll end our marriage or mess up our relationship. Thoughts on that? Um, wow. <laughs> well, it's something that I've never dealt with. Um, but if I were to offer advice to a friend, um, I would say that... Again, trying to decide to do it on your own is never the answer. And that uh, I would probably start um, with seeking the guidance of the Lord in directing me on how do I approach this with my spouse. And I would be be praying for my spouse too, that the spirit will be present with them to absorb this information um, and just asking that the spirit be with them to help them process and heal and work through that as well. Um, I I really think that we have to just really lean into the Lord when we're dealing with those really difficult, personal, touchy things. um, Because we, um, we don't have all of the answers. We just don't, but God does. And developing that strength and that relationship with him uh, will allow us to navigate those waters. So first seeking the Lord and then seeking for the spirit to be with that spouse um, during that time of admission um, and then onward during that repentance and that process of being vulnerable. I like that answer. I realize that's a very difficult question. Um, but I love that you went first to the Lord for personal revelation because there probably isn't a one-size-fits-all answer. No, I don't think question. so. <laughs> and so I love that you went to the Lord, and that's what I think both of us would encourage a listener that says, I've got something, and I'm worried if I open up to my spouse, it's going to be um, hurt him or her deeply and maybe be the end of our marriage. And I would want to give you, our listeners, um, hope that as you open up the Lord, you receive personal revelation and that maybe, yeah, it would be a step or two back in your marriage, but it may give you a foundation to go forward. We are doing a podcast that we're recording. You know, it's probably going to come out a week or 10 days after this, and we haven't recorded yet, but it's a husband and wife, and he's had a pornography. I, 
I don't even like to use the word challenge, but I guess that's the reality of the situation. I don't use any language to create shame, right? <laughs> to your point, um, throughout their marriage, and they've both worked through that together. And and the spouse is going to talk about some of the trauma that she, uh, you know, has lived because of this and legitimate trauma yeah. that you may feel as a child of a mother with addiction. But they've kind of walked this road together, and I'm looking forward to recording that podcast. You can oh, kind of watch for that. Oh, it'd be great to hear and, that perspective. And um, you're right, there is. And one of the stories he told me before we recorded the pod, before we recorded the podcast, is just one day, um, he and I'll share this. He just felt God's love for him, and it stunned him mm-hmm. that God could love him with this pornography problem, and it took all the shame away, Andrea. And that was the key thing for him to be able to move forward. Right was. God's love for him that's unconditional and the shame that that took away and the courage that then gave him to hit this head on. That's a beautiful thought. And I I just want to speak to that really quickly too, because I've had people ask me after I've delivered a talk or a fireside or whatnot, say, well, how do you actually learn to cling to the savior and not to the trial or not cling to the shame anymore? And that's exactly what it is. It's realizing the place in God's heart that you dwell in. And it's realizing that our heavenly father doesn't see us for our sins or our brokenness or wherever it is that we feel like we're lacking. Our heavenly father looks down on us and he sees his child. He sees the person, that divine being that you are going to become hundreds, thousands of years from now as this exalted being, right? He sees all your potential. He sees all your divine And so if you can remember that that's how God sees you, not for this hiccup that you're experiencing, he sees you for the divine being that you are and that you will become. And when you realize that, wow, the progress starts to happen. That's when you can shed the shame. That's when you can cling to the savior because you know, wait a minute, I am not my trial. That's not who I am. That's just something I'm experiencing. But that's not who I am. It's really good thoughts. For those of our listeners that want to scroll back, I did a podcast just, I think I called it Hope-Filled and Non-Shaming Thoughts to Solve Porn. And mm. it's in the, one of the first 10 episodes, if you want. It's just me speaking on that podcast um, that would be a sister podcast to this one. And I love the concept of vulnerability. I watch the YSA sometimes vulnerably open up with stuff in their life, like a parent that's in prison or a yeah. Family bankruptcy or pornography or just stuff. And and often that would create vulnerability for the other person that brought them both together. Yeah. And someone would sit, come to me and says, I really like this guy because I actually was the first guy I could talk to about this in my life. And he still loved me. And he then talked about this. And, and so I think it's a principle of bringing relationships together and falling in love. There's a physical component of falling in love, but there's this vulnerable connection of two people um, jointly coming together. It doesn't mean one has to rescue the other. Sometimes I see relationships where it's Mm. a rescue relationship, but one's sort of going in the relationship with the purpose of rescuing the other. I don't think that's a good idea, but if we're kind of co-rescuing two people, we all are a little fallen. And if that relationship is fundamentally building both of us up, And um, because part of the relationship is vulnerability. And I think that needs to continue on throughout marriage as we 
we isn't like we just are vulnerable in the dating process and then we have to be perfect in marriage. I think we still, <laughs> right. um, just because we're sealed and under the power of that covenant and that joint relationship with Christ doesn't mean we stop being vulnerable and need to be perfect. So just some thoughts on that. Um, more thoughts that come to your mind. Okay. Well, you know, I'm thinking about, um, you just talked about rescue and it brought me back to a misguided notion that I had when, uh, dealing with my mother's addiction. And so I had been married. Let's see. I got married in 2003, July of 2003. And in February of 2004 is when my mother's addiction finally came out. Now, during those last few years of high school, I knew that something was up with mom, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. You know, my dad had always been the addict and it was very obvious uh, that his challenge was alcohol. Yes. And so that was something that we had been dealing with all the time. But mom, mom was our rock. Mom was like the life of the party. She was, she was everyone we went to with every problem, trial, challenge. Um, She was that type of person. She was a hugger, right? If my mom walked into a room of a hundred people that she didn't know, she was going to hug every single person in that room. And every person in that room was going to genuinely hug her back and they were going to love her because you could just feel that love pouring off of her. She had no judgment ever with anyone. She was so just open and so unconditional with her love. And so this mom was just this light to our family and this blessing. And those last couple of years of high school, I started to notice that things were changing a little bit with her. She almost seemed a bit numb and just wasn't as present all the time. She'd come in and out and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Now, part of this, I believe, had to do with the fact that there just wasn't a lot of education surrounding opioid addiction at the time. I knew that mom was taking pain pills. I did not, however, realize that they were as addictive as heroin. I did not realize how mind altering they could be. I just didn't know. And then the other half of me, I think, was in denial. My dad was always the addict. How could this be my mom now? And I just, I just didn't know. And um, so I leave I leave home right after graduating from high school. And at this time I am on fire with the gospel. I am so excited about my membership of the church and I am trying to do everything that I can to absorb all of the things, right? I'm feeling like I've adjusted, um, to the culture. I'm, I'm enjoying my new gospel insights. And I felt so trapped (laughs) in my circumstances at home. And I was ready to just get out and go. Right. So I leave home after this very strong prompting comes that I need to put a pause on aggressively uh, applying for college scholarships and whatnot and, and seek to do something else because I'm praying at this time, like heavenly father, I've got the gospel now, but I've got all this heaviness around me. How do I find me? I was really focused on my, my spiritual development, social, all of that. Um, I mean, I'm a teenager for goodness sake. And so I'm praying to God, help me find me. And the answer that I get is go surf. (laughs) And so I don't really understand how that works at this time, but I follow through with the answer. And that's when I'm accepted into AmeriCorps. And I leave my home, um, two weeks after September 11th, actually. Um, 
And I go into AmeriCorps and wow, I spent a year doing nothing for me and finding myself in that year. It was such a beautiful teaching experience for me and such such an honor to be able to really do that, like to dig deep and fulfill my baptismal covenant, right? Of like taking the Lord's name upon me. Like even though it wasn't a, a religious pursuit, it was the very act of serving and doing that really helped me to find my spiritual self and to know, you know what? I can be useful. <laughs> And I just gained so much confidence that year in, again, that divine being that Heavenly Father believed me to be. So I come home from this. I'm still on fire with the gospel. I meet my husband. We get married. And I am thinking, I have made it to the top of Mount Everest, right? Like I got through growing up. I've been married in the temple. I am about to start that forever family that could be right from that story I shared with you during that song. And I'm like, this is it. And then all of a sudden I'm down on the bunny hill just a few months later because my mom's addiction comes out. So my father has a house fire and he and my mom only lived about a mile apart. So he has this house fire. He sustains third degree burns on the palms of his hands while putting out the fire. And my husband and I are there helping him dressing those wounds. Um, That was, that was a really hard spot for my dad. That was his rock bottom. Uh, It did not cure him of his addiction, but dad went from being very, very angry all the time to uh, being a lot more mellow. And we really have developed a beautiful relationship since this time. And I think that part of it was just that he had a very physical experience that can be very spiritually related. I mean, he, I don't know if you've ever been around a burn victim before, but the pain that I still have yet to find words to describe to describe that level of pain that I witnessed in him. And I wasn't even the one experiencing it. What's your dad's first name? Steve. Steve. Yes. And so watching him go through that, I remember one time um, my husband and I had to come over and take off the bandages. And then we had to scrub the wounds with soap and water and then rebandage them. And wow, like if that's not a symbol for being vulnerable, I don't know what is, right? Because the wounds had to be exposed. They had to be scrubbed. They had to um, be dealt with in a very real and physical way. And I feel like emotional challenges have to be dealt with in a physical way. It's not only our spiritual mind processing those things, but we actually have physiological experiences, right? Like we know that stress can cause pain. We know all of these things. And so you have to scrub those wounds. You have to be vulnerable, open them up. And it's only until you face it, you face all of it, the most treacherous of pain, that then you can bandage those back up again and begin to heal. And so that was a very physical challenge for him to start to kind of go through a little bit of a healing process. So we go through this with dad and then we get a call about two weeks into his recovery. And he says, Andrea, I know you don't want to talk with me about this because my parents talking about each other was very off limits. I had set very clear boundaries. (laughs) 
And he said, but I have something that I need to tell you about your mom and you're not going to like it, but I really need you to hear me out. And I say, okay. And he says, well, your mom brought me over a casserole because she, you know, she heard about the accident and he said, and then she stole all of my morphine pills. So that was the moment where the, the denial went out the window. <laughs> Everything changed. And it was like bring you to your knees overwhelming because I didn't know what to do. And I felt... um I felt shame that I had been in denial for so long. Um, I worried. Um, I worried about so many things. Shame bred so much fear. There were years during my mother's addiction that I, um, I really let shame rule me for quite some time. I was, I was afraid of what people would think. And then there's the fears of, well, is she going to get caught? Is she going to go to prison? Is I mean, all of these things, right? Because someone who's addicted to opioids, they turn to some pretty, terrible methods to get those drugs that they need. And so I take her to a detox center. I don't, I don't know what else to do. We confront her at first. She denies it. And then we take her to the detox center. And I, and I remember thinking, okay, it's going to be better now. <laughs> I was so naive. Um, I, I just really thought that she would walk through those doors and come back mom. And unfortunately Years and years and years went by where this pattern was repeated. And um, before mom passed, um, it was 20 years, 20 years of this addiction and this heaviness. And was it 20 years from when the casserole experience happened or was it? It was, it was 20 years from the time that she got addicted until she passed. Until and it was about 15. 14, no, excuse me, 15 or 16 years of us being aware of the addiction, okay. really aware of the addiction. We were really suffering, you were suffering during those early years. Knowing. Exactly. Right. We just, something was off and that was hard. That was hard in and of itself. Cause you could just see, I could see my mom just slowly, slowly drifting from me during those latter years of high school. when I really felt like I needed her the most. And that's probably a humbling thing for listeners to hear that have an addiction. I don't want to add to your burden. Neither of us want to create more shame. Um, but I think there's a principle there that, you know, loved ones, even if they aren't aware of your addiction, they're aware that something's off. Yes. And hiding it. I mean, I don't want to go down the shame road to explain to you what's happening to loved ones around you, except you know, the story that Andrea is sharing that she now recognizes what was right. happening those years. Right. Um, well, and maybe it's... I want to, would create hope that, you know, this, there's still, t you know, everything about this podcast is trying to create hope too. It's the D shame, create hope yes. podcast. Um, hope that, you know, maybe if Andrea's mother had been listening to this podcast um, yeah. back before the casserole experience, she could have, um, done some things to solve this back then being yeah. vulnerable and doing the things that Andrea is suggesting. Not that Andrea would need to tell her daughter at that point, but tell others in her life and trusted adults to get the help she needs. And um, maybe you never would have been aware that your mother had worked through this. Um, right. And there never would have been the casserole experience, but keep sharing your story. Right. Sorry. I get a little emotional when you talk about those. What if Andrea's sure. mom would have heard something like this? Because I do feel so much hope lately. Oh my goodness. I moved back to Utah about a What's year and a half ago. What's your mom's first name? 
Debbie. Debbie. Yeah. So I moved back to Utah about a year and a half ago, and I was thrilled to see all of the billboards everywhere about the opioid epidemic. And I just thought, ah, the shame is lifting and now the healing can happen. The education is starting to happen. And that's, that's what I'm doing. That's why I'm here, right? Is to educate people to lift shame so that we can start to heal as a community, because this is an epidemic. I don't care if it's opioid addiction or pornography addiction or whatever it is, or if it's suicidal thoughts, or there are so many things that we, again, let Satan take over with shame. And when we can get rid of it, we can heal. So I was thrilled. I was thrilled to see that. And it, um, it warms my heart to, to see the education happening. Um, and that's why I'm being vulnerable and talking about these things that are hard. Um, I miss my mom. What would you say to your mom right now? (laughs) I want her to know that I love her despite everything that happened. It's not who she is in my mind and that her journey is not through. And I know that she knows this because I've had some really sacred experiences um, feeling my mother's presence when I speak to people at a fireside or whatever else. Um, you know, that's part of the reason why I was doing this. We'll, we'll fast forward a little bit. Um, but after mom passed, I started to get some really strong promptings that I needed to start to share my story. And even before she passed away, I had been receiving some of those promptings that I needed to maybe talk about my conversion and experiences and trying to navigate these waters of the addiction of a loved one. And, uh, but I just always thought, well, it's not my season. I am too busy with my, with my small children. And I kind of squashed it down. And so after she passed away, these promptings kept coming and I kept ignoring them because I was really scared to be vulnerable um, I was afraid to put myself out there. One, one of the things I was afraid of was that if I started to share in a public format that people would maybe think that I was using my trauma to get attention or these, I mean, I feel like these are valid concerns, right? And so I held off for a long time and then the promptings were so strong. They started waking me up in the middle of the night and then my mom started coming to me in dreams. And I knew, okay, okay, if I ever want to sleep again, I have to start telling people my story. And so that's how this journey of mine began. That's why I'm sitting here today is because um, I really feel like I'm on the Lord's errand. Um, And it is really hard sometimes. I I go home after a podcast interview or after a speech and sometimes I'm I'm really drained, right? Um, But in the same breath, I feel so much more hope every single time. It's like every time I share, every time I open up, every time I'm vulnerable, I inevitably will receive a message from somebody that says, I lost a family member or I know somebody going through addiction or um, you're, you're talking about victimhood like has helped me to really recognize where my focus needs to be or whatever it is. And then I go, okay, that was hard, but I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep doing this because it just keeps getting confirmed to me over and over and over again. 
um, that that's what I'm supposed to be doing. So I promise you that if you'll just do it, despite the hard, if you'll just do it scared, (laughs) the outcome will be so much more abundant than you could ever have imagined. Because when we do the Lord's will, he cannot help but pour his blessings out upon you and upon those that you love. And that has been remarkable. So back to mom's story though, right? So we send her to the detox center and this pattern repeats after several years and she just can't seem to kick the habit. Meanwhile, go-getter Andrea here is thinking, I'm going to fix mom, right? Like everything I've ever put my mind to in my life, I've decided I'm going to do it. I've been determined and I've done what I had to do to get the outcome that I wanted. And so I had this misguided notion that because I loved my mother, the Christ-like thing to do was to fix her. When in reality, the Christ-like thing to do was to love her. That was a really hard realization for me to get to. I didn't know how to set boundaries. These years, I am trying to raise a young family. I have small children who my mom hasn't even been able to connect with because her opioid addiction has taken her. She went from being a functioning addict. And then as the years went on, um, at her worst, mom was homeless. And um, that was hard, too. To see mom who used to be the light and the life of the party become just this shell of a human being. And so she gets to this point where she is living out of her car and my mother attempts suicide. And she does this in front of my brother's home. And he finds her and gets her to the hospital and they save her life. And she spends two weeks after that in a detox slash psychiatric ward. And at the end of this, they uh, release her and I take her. I volunteer. I'm living in Seattle at the time. And what dealing with her addiction looked like me on the phone 10, sometimes 15 times a day, she would call sometimes coherent, sometimes not. I mean, it really was taking over my life and I didn't know how to set the boundaries. And it was starting to affect me being able to take care of my children and be a good wife and do all of these things that were expected of me because I was trying to save mom, right? So I bring her to me and my husband, bless his soul. He was such a patient man in dealing with all of this. And we decide together that he's a go-getter too, you know, (laughs) and we're, we're ignorant, if you will, in our addiction support training. And I've learned a whole lot since then, but we think we're going to be my mom's rehabilitation center. We are going to get her clean and sober because I was convinced that if I got mom's head clear, if I got her free, of the opioids that we were going to get her back. And so we did, she came to live with us and I took everything away. I took away the, the pills I took away. I I even took away her cigarettes and put a nicotine patch on her. Right. I was like, tough love all the way. We're going to do this. And what happens is we get mom clean. And that was the first time Um, in any of my kids' life that they really got to interact with grandma. 
sorry, I get emotional because sometimes I just think these are, these are the things, these are the little things that addiction robs from us is that person, that person being present, right? Addiction takes over. It enslaves a soul and they can't be who they really are because of that. And so for the first time, my kids get this opportunity to be around grandma and it was so amazing, but she wasn't a hundred percent mom and she wasn't a hundred percent there. And I struggled. I thought, look, Heavenly Father, I've done everything that you have asked me to do. Like I have been patient and here I am. I just got her clean. I just got her sober. Like, why isn't she there? Why isn't she a hundred percent? What's going on? And so my husband at this point, we know if mom has a prayer of staying clean, she's got to stay with us for a whole lot longer. And so at this time it had been almost three months and we offer for her to move in with us stay a year, get a job. We will get you on your feet. And then, then maybe then you can be out on your own. And, um, we offer this to her and she says no. And I'm heartbroken. Um, because I know, I know that if I let her go, that she'll go right back to using again. And I just can't wrap my mind around this. I remember saying, how could, how can you choose the drugs over your child? Because I just didn't understand. I didn't understand how addiction worked and how it enslaves you. And it's a very complex balance between behaviors and chemical processes and reactions and things that are physically altered. And it's, that's why it's so hard to get through that. And, um, I just didn't understand that at this point, she really had lost that ability to choose. And that's one of the hardest things about addiction. And that's why, again, it's one of Satan's greatest tool because it's taking over our agency. And so I take mom to the airport and she says, I'm going to stay clean. It's fine. Everything's going to be okay. And I know it's not, I know she's not ready She hasn't gone through all of the steps. It's like trying to go through the repentance process without actually going through the process, right? (laughs) Like just saying, I'm sorry and thinking that it's fine. And that's not how it works. And so I remember taking her to the airport and just being so sad that she was about to leave. And just as I'm about to take her through security um, and hug her goodbye, I receive this very clear impression that says, this is the last time. And so, um, I'm overwhelmed by this feeling, but I'm grateful for this opportunity of awareness that this is it. Right. And so I remember putting her face between my hands and looking into her eyes and just saying, mom, I love you. I've always, always loved you. And you have always been enough for me. And you've always been enough for Christ. And then I let her go. And I remember walking away from that experience, just feeling so broken and so defeated. Because I knew, I knew she'd go back. I knew she'd go back to the drugs and I knew that there was nothing that I could do about it. And so I, I came home and I remember yelling heavenly father in my prayer again, approaching him with the, I've done everything that you've asked me to do. What more do you want me to do? And I just remember him saying, love her. It's not your job to fix her. 
You just need to love her. And um, so I did. So at that point, I, um, this is about five years or so before she passed. So this is the first time in a decade <laughs> that I learned to start setting boundaries. And I learned how do I support her in a healthy way, in a way that still allows me to be there for my husband, to be there for my children, to be there for myself, um, and to not allow this, her addiction to take me over. Right. I like to think of it as weather, <laughs> like this cloud of addiction, her cloud, her weather had been hanging over us. And I was so obsessed with fixing her weather that I didn't realize that the sun was there waiting for me behind the clouds. I just wasn't noticing it. Right. It didn't need to be my weather. It didn't need to be my forecast. I needed to be aware of it and I needed to just show her love, but I needed, I needed to have my own sunshine, right? My own weather, my own light, my own warmth. And so I began to slowly, but surely learn to set healthy boundaries. And that helped me a lot. Did the sadness of her, um, absence, her mental absence go away? No. Did mourning the loss of not being able to go to my mother when I needed advice or that motherly love go away? No. Did the longing for her to be there with her grandchildren go away? No. And I still feel those things even now that she's gone. And, um, but the difference is, is that I know where my strength comes from and that's from drawing upon the savior. So I set boundaries and I'm finally beginning to feel like this weight has been lifted and that I've learned to function in this space. And then we um, get this prompting that we need to move back to Utah. And it's a very strong prompting and my husband and I both get it independently and I am nervous about this because I'm thinking, what will my new boundaries look like with mom being so close to us? And how do we get through this? And so, but we just, it is just strong and powerful. And we know we're supposed to come back to Utah. And so we move back to Utah and we arrive in January. And in June, um, I get a phone call that mom had passed away. And once again, I come to God angry, sure. shouting in prayer and saying, okay, this time I really did everything that you asked me to do. I allowed her her agency. I set healthy boundaries and I just showed forth an excess of love in any way that I could. But this heavenly father, this is not the ending that I had hoped for. Because in my mind during those years of setting boundaries, I thought for sure that what that was going to look like was mom deciding for herself to heal. You see, when my husband and I became her rehab center and we took everything away from her and we forced sobriety on her, the reason why mom couldn't choose to stay clean is because she hadn't chosen to heal yet herself. You cannot force that on another person. You really can only show love. And so I kept thinking, Heavenly Father, what this is going to look like is I'm going to set these boundaries. I'll do everything that you asked me to do. And then at some point, 
mom's going to choose to heal and then we're going to have her back. I was convinced of this. And so right after she died, I stepped away. Um, I mean, obviously I was still attending church and I, um, I still had all of my faith and everything like that, but I just wasn't connecting as deeply with heavenly father as I used to. And I remember I stopped praying for a while. Um, I just couldn't understand how, um, how after doing everything I was supposed to do, the ending that I thought was supposed to happen didn't. And finally, after a time, I remember coming to the Lord, getting the courage to kneel down and pour out my whole heart. And I think part of the reason why I hesitated for so long is because I knew the moment that I knelt down and I offered that sincere, vulnerable prayer, he was going to put me to work. (laughs) I knew it from all the experiences that I've had before. I knew that as soon as I let myself come to him, that I would receive the answers that I desired and needed and that he would put me to work. And that's exactly what happened. Um, I remember in that prayer, getting a very clear answer. Um, that this isn't it. Mom's journey isn't over. And hence me sitting here now, (laughs) following through with those promptings. You know, there are so many times in our lives when what actually happens isn't what we had planned or how we thought it would go, right? And then we learn that if we stay faithful and obedient, that we become so much more than we would have had it gone the way we had planned it. Um, Like I said, since starting to share and open up and be vulnerable and sharing this story, it has been made very clear to me that my mom's journey is not through, that this wasn't the ending that I thought was supposed to happen, but this is exactly what the Lord had planned. He knew that mom's addiction had enslaved her to a point where her healing was not going to happen until she was with him in the spirit world. And I'm okay with that now. I'm okay with that because now I feel like we're on this journey together. This journey to help people shed the shame and to realize that, um, It's about connection and that's how we heal and that there is always hope, always hope when we place our trust in God. On behalf of all of our listeners, Andrea, there's some, you have an incredible voice to talk about this subject. Um, I wrote down a few notes. I just like to go over. Yeah. Um, these are in no particular order. Um, one of the th- things I believe is pornography is peaking now. I'm 58 and I'm wired just the same way as 20-year-olds are, but I didn't have 24-7 access. And right. You 20 and 30-year-olds um, are in ten year- and teens are dealing with 24-7 access and, and that's not going to change, but the tools... Um, and the understanding and the de-shaming and people like Andrea is what's changing. And 
you are going to become the mothers and fathers that have had to walk this road, even though those of you that have messed up, and you're going to become the parents and the priesthood leaders, and you're going to be able to help the next generation better than my generation is able to help you because you've walked this road, and you know firsthand what it's like to to um, be dealing with pornography. So um, that's maybe a de-shaming and a hope-filled comment, but um, I want you to hang in there. Um, another random thought that came to my mind is a couple times I put names on the prayer roll of people that have died. And I've always, mm-hmm. I don't think that's against church policy, but I've thought of people on the other side of the veil that still need our help. And even right. though they're with God and have more understanding and they're with our Savior, I think their hearts sometimes still need to be healed. And I think what's one of the things President Nelson's talking about is our responsibility on both sides of the veil, and he's the prophet for people on both sides of the veil. So mm-hmm. I don't want to create a new policy, but I've done that a few times. Um, the other thing that came to my mind is your mother, Debbie's role in her grandkids' life for good. And one of the paydays for you, and it may be happening already, is you talking about this and acting on your mom's impressions is going to bless your own kids. And I think some of the paydays for you and Sean are seeing your work and seeing the impact for good in your kids and your kids being able to talk to you about stuff. We wanted to create a culture in our home where we had rules, but we also wanted the kids to talk to us about stuff because we felt like the the closeting of the stuff was worse than the stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It really is. so I think, you know, that's going to be a legacy to Debbie um, and is the impact for good, obviously, in your life and her grandkids' life. Um, Thank you. That means a lot. And I just <laughs> Sorry, you're making me <laughs> emotional now. <laughs> and then it's I wanted to thought. talk about your husband, Sean, because I think he grew up in a pretty traditional, multiple-generation LDS family. Yes. <laughs> and you grew up in this home where you're a new convert, you got parents working on stuff, and some Seans of the world would say, I'm not going to marry someone like Andrea because she doesn't have all the check boxes. She doesn't have lots of generations of being Mormon, and I don't know how it's going to work out. But I love that he saw all past that and married you for who you are. And I love the beauty that brings in your marriage and the, and the different life perspectives that come together with you and Sean and your ability to raise your kids. So I meet YSA sometimes that would date someone like you, and they'd kind of be, there'd be a lot of yellow flags around your situation. Yeah. Um, so please do what Sean did. Don't just rule someone out because they don't have all the right check boxes or the right Mormon heritage or the right conversion story or the right economic background or grew up on the right side of the tracks. Please just marry someone or consider marrying someone because of who they are and their potential, and what they can do to complement you and the kind of parent they can be. Um, I love this idea of, I can't fix her and I have to love her. Mm-hmm. Our elders corn president talked about, you know, his wife, whose brother died by suicide in our ward, and he, you know, wanted to fix the pain in his wife, obviously, that she felt, and he probably felt with her brother's suicide. Right. And, and he's a great guy. And he finally just told the elders that Heavenly Father told me, you know, you can't be her savior. Right. You can be her husband. Yes. Yes. And so I love the, what you're teaching us here is you can't fix your mom. 
but you can love your mom. And I love that interaction you had, I think, at the Seattle airport when you put your arms, your face in her hands. I can kind of see that and just told her you loved her. And I think, you know, that's a beautiful moment in humanity. You know, Elder Richard G. Scott, and forgive me if I get this wrong because I don't have it in front of me. This is coming from memory, but he has this amazing uh, quote that says, do not attempt to override agency. The Lord himself would not do that. Forced obedience yields no blessings. I love that. I really love that. I, it was a hard-earned lesson. It's really hard. And I <laughs> but don't, I believe it. I don't know if this applies in this situation. I was talking to a bishop after somebody um, died um, in an addiction situation, and he surprised me. He said, well, this will be a blessing. And I thought, well, how could anybody's death be a blessing is what I thought privately. Mm-hmm. And certainly I don't think most many people felt that because a loved one had gone. But I think maybe in the totality, and I talk about the 40,000 foot level of the gospel, that maybe this was time for Debbie. It and was. maybe she did all she could. And a loving Heavenly Father allowed her to leave. I don't know what the right vocabulary is, though, so that she could, she, so she so couldn't could progress heal. anymore. <laughs> progress. She yes. couldn't progress anymore here. And I sense. Your good mom's heart is a heart that wanted to always do the right thing. This addiction was not out of rebellion. It was not out of a desire to hurt you or hurt other people. And I bet she had a lot of hurt, obviously, that you're aware of through other things that came into her life and turned to this in a way to deaden that pain and deal with that pain. I think you know that. Right. So I, I think that, you know, in these really tough situations, we just do what you're teaching. We leave it the Savior's feet. Um, we know that your good mom is progressing and reaching out to you, and you bring honor to her by sharing her story. If she were here, I th- and I use present tense when I talk about someone that's gone. I would never say Debbie's past tense. I'd say present tense, and I think you bring honor to her by sharing her story. And because it is the ability to take her story and heal and give hope to other people. So I think you're acting on great impressions and it's a great family love story and very difficult, but these kind of stories are really needed. Thank you. Anything you'd like to share in closing? Um, You know, I have a scripture that I love that I want to read here. Uh, Jeremiah 17 uh, verses seven and eight. Blessed is the man that trusteth in God and whose hope the Lord is for he shall be as a tree planted by the waters and that spreadeth out her roots by the river and shall not see when the heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green. Clearly the Lord will fortify us when we surround ourselves with him, when we learn of him, when we trust him, we will find our hope, that kind of hope that plants you by the waters, the kind of hope that grows deep roots. It's that kind of hope that trusts that he will deliver you through all of the heat. I know that you have all been touched by the heat of your trials, but I promise you, that your soul has not been burned when you refuse to be defined by the flames. And instead, when you can place your focus on the leaf and on the possibility for growth. 
there can be so much joy found in our lives if we will focus on the growth. And we'll finish with that. That's a great concluding statement. Um, I want to give Andrea's contact information, at least her Facebook profile, if you'd like her to speak at a fireside or... Um, I know she does a lot of that or just would like to reach out to her. She's Andrea Seely, S-E-E-L-Y Sorensen on Facebook. Did I say that right? Actually, that's my personal profile. Oh, <laughs> scratch that. Yep. Let's give you your, your I public do have, page. Yeah, I'll go ahead. and So I've got a page on Facebook and it's Andrea Jean Sorensen. And that's Sorensen with an E-N. And Jean with the J-E-A-N. J-E-A-N, Andrea Jean Sorensen. And then I also have a website, andreajeansorensen.com. And I'm on Instagram under Andrea Jean Sorensen. So I tried to keep it easy and Good. have the same name over Smart. all of the social media platforms. But yes, I would love to come and speak to your youth or to your ward or to your stake or whatever it is, because the goal in all of this is to share hope and to share the fact that despite the hardest of times, you guys, that there is just so much light ahead of us. And I hope that people reach out and I hope you continue to be able to do this because I know I wish I'd heard some of the things you taught before I served as a singles word bishop and before I even started raising six kids <laughs> now that all of them are out of the house. Um, but some of the things you're teaching, I wish I had learned earlier. So keep doing what you're doing, Andrea Thank Thanks to our listeners for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. And thanks to Tom Garbett, my producer, who puts these up on all these different platforms so you can listen to them.